don't think productivity is necessarily a part of it. I think it's, it's mainly around what the public purse can afford. At the very least, even to protect the integrity of those people, these matters should be investigated and that the, the charge has been made that they hadn't been investigated to date. That is the context in which Mary Lou MacDonald went into the chamber and read the names. We're still not at the point where uh, GPs have signed up, but we have been putting the mechanism in place. Um, we have, since January of this year, increased the amount of discretionary medical cards which are dealing with exactly the type of case you're talking about, from 50,000 to over 80,000 this year. People that are have significant medical needs, we are now looking at them in a, in a more, I suppose, compassionate and, and in a way that, to ensure that they will get the treatment that they need. There you go, Minister of State Kathleen Lynch there talking about the free GP cards for under six-year-olds. Mick Clifford, Irish Examiner, special correspondent, joining us as always in studio on a Friday. How are you doing, Mick? Not too bad, John, no. Now, the agreement for uh, free GP care for the under sixes, it was announced yesterday, costing double effectively what, what, the, what the government had, had planned for. All children equal before the law and all children will be treated equally for uh, GP access. Are, are you surprised uh, at all that this uh, got across the line? It really had to. and It was a really central well, plank to, of government to, policy, wasn't to, it? To, to rephrase uh, how you described it there, um, two words, election stunt. Uh, I can't see anything more. And history repeating itself for Back to the Future as worryingly with a number of things in recent months also seem to be the case. If you go back to 2002 John um, free GP or sorry free medical cards for the over 70s Mm. this was announced by Charlie McCreevy Bertie Ahern quite obviously in order to get the grey vote which is which a section of the population that votes huge in massive proportions uh, to get them over the line signed a deal with the GPs once the GPs had them over a barrel the GPs were paid four times the capitation grant than they were for what was then a standard medical card here we've an increase of 82% according to the IMO once again the GPs have the government over a barrel once again to my mind it's being done as an election stunt by the government at a time as your previous guest Kevin yeah. mentioned that stuff is really obscene as far as I'm concerned because you have a situation like you say just as Kevin who was sitting in that chair just a few moments ago was mentioning that uh, well these aren't his words but effectively he's saying look uh, and people like him millionaires are going to be entitled to this the same as the person who is is you know on, on the breadline, so to speak so it's a universal thing and they're People are questioning the, the justification. Many people are questioning questioning its justification. And, yeah, and rightly so. And, you know, we always use examples in this. We say millionaires and Michael O'Leary's or whatever. Mm. There are people, people, being perfectly honest, people like myself who is not on the breadline, they don't qualify for a medical card. And it would hurt me any time going to a GP for a child. But the, 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 the people who are, as you say, on the breadline, people who are just over the threshold for a medical card, um, you know, for do- those kind of people, yes, it is difficult. But the notion that everybody gets this and you have to say the, the other element to it is this, John. I'm all in favour of a scenario where you have universal benefits. Yeah. If you have an equal scenario that it's paid for by taxes, there's no suggestion of there being any tax hike in any area of the economy mm. to pay for this. Mm. It's all a question of coming out of existing funds. So who is going to miss out? If we're to follow the trend that's been there, it's those most in need are going to miss out for the sake of effectively a PR exercise. Let's let's move on then because we've a lot to cover in, in, in just a few minutes. The the teachers' conferences always take place around Easter time. The ASTI earlier this week didn't invite Jan O'Sullivan, um, and we heard her actually saying that uh, pay rises won't be linked to uh, productivity. Your, your your thoughts on that? 
Well, first of all, I think the, the scenario with young teachers is awful and and that, that the, it's begun to be addressed. And they, that As in the, what the, 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 the conditions they're facing. They're paid less the of an entry rate yes. than others. They're effectively working for less than their colleagues. I yes. think that is appalling. That is the first priority that should be in any look at education, along with um, going back over the cuts for in areas of education disadvantage and areas of special needs. Having said that, the the teachers are and look, teacher teaching has been devalued, and and teachers have been under pressure. There's no question about that, and I think they're a very valuable resource, far more than it's given credit for. However, the notion that we should go back to the pay rates of 2008, which has been called for at all the conferences, and which by extension would mean going back to those pay rates right across the public sector, again you're talking about back to the future. That suggests that there is sustainable pay levels at that time. Now. The pay levels at that time, like the services, yeah. like so much else was built in a bubble economy. Are we saying that we're able to go back to that now as we're emerging into what hopefully is some grasp on the real world as opposed to this illusory place we lived in there for five or six years? Well, is it is it is it more to do with what you were saying a moment ago in terms of electioneering and election stunts? Like, are, are we, we're in, we're 12 months at, away from an election, if not sooner, and both government parties are going to be trying to divvy out some sort of uh, uh, olive branch yeah. to, to, to their own interests parties. Exactly, that's what they're going to do and the, the pay talks coming up soon will be very interesting to see and again the big fear is we're dealing uh, now because we're in election year we're dealing with perceptions rather than realities and we're dealing with the electorate rather than society and that notion that we have in the so-called republic that you take care of the most vulnerable and those two issues I think we're going to see repeatedly in all the things that arise between now and the election. What about the, the the pension levy? Do teachers have a point, do you think, that um, they've had to pay, what is it, 7% of a pension 7. levy? 5%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and they've been asked to do, uh, what is it, an extra 30-something hours a year? Yeah, no, look, I mean, and I know plenty of people who are teachers, and this really whacked them in terms mm. of income, in terms of getting by and all. There's no question about that. I mean, do, do you have to look at it again, though. I mean, the type of pension that you get as a teacher... Mm. How much in the private sector would you have to earn or would you have to put in to get that? I mean, and every, and you know, you, there's this retort, well, people who went into teaching went in on that basis. Well, I mean, when I started working 30 years ago, I started working on the basis that uh, basically I'd be able to have a proper pension one way or the other. And that's gone down the swanny as it is for most people. So you have no sympathy for them? Uh, I, I have some sympathy. I have some sympathy for them, but I certainly, I, I would certainly question whether or not that levy should be completely removed. Okay, let me move on to another issue uh, in the the sphere of politics, and that was the committee on procedure and privileges ruling. Um, what was it two days ago that Mary Lou Macdonald, the deputy Sinn Fein leader, um, was was wrong to uh, name people who she said held Ansbacker accounts uh, in the doll. The, the the committee said that these comments. Uh, if they were made outside of parliamentary privilege, would have been the equivalent of of defamation. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. I did, and and all the people, well, most of them who responded, all came forward and said there was no basis yeah. to what she said in there. Uh, she said it without doing any research. If you look at cases, and we've had a number of cases where parliamentary privilege was used, just off the top of my head, you'd um, Brendan Howland and um, Jim Higgins mm. in, in relation to corruption in Donegal. They knew their homework they'd have done before they ever brought this into power. Joe Higgins and Gamma the workers that were exploited even the likes of Mick, Mick Wallace and Claire Daly about the penalty points they had all 
the stuff there. They were doing it on, on the basis that it is there for in the public interest. Here, and we can't take away from context, it was a time when Sinn Féin were yeah. under pressure over uh, cover-up of sexual abuse. Here was a situation whereby there was a dossier that, as far as I can see, had been looked at every which way over 10, 12 years and came up with absolutely nothing. And in walks Mary Lou MacDonald and throws out these names. And... I would have to suggest that I would think there was a cynicism involved there in that a lot of Sinn Féin's constituency, uh, particularly in, in the areas that have suffered more with austerity, they look with resentment at retired politicians and their pensions. And that's very understandable. We all look at it that way. But to, to then believe that it's OK to go in there and attempt to stain these people with what is effectively calling them uh, crooks, effectively. Yeah. And, and knowing that there's no sanction can be taken against you. That's exactly the point. But isn't it, you know, if you look at what's happened since then, and they were under pressure, as you say, over the whole child sex abuse allegations within their own uh, Republican or- organisation, it, 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 the polls have 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 come. There's been numerous polls ever since, and um, the fact that Mary Lou Macdonald named all of these people under doll privilege hasn't really no. affected them in the polls at all. That's exactly that's what I'm saying. So, so Absol- it's worked to their advantage. Oh, the, the, yeah. no, no question about it. The, the bigger picture is this: that privilege is there. And it's a vital one in a democracy that Parliament can be used in such a way to raise issues and, if necessary, name somebody in situations. Yet, that was a complete abuse of it. And the fact that there is no regard for that, I think, is a very worrying thing. Well, then, just one quick question more on this. Um, uh, Mary Lou Macdonald, we know, is away on holidays at the moment. And the, the party, Sinn Féin, have said that she'll be making some sort of statement when she comes home th- th- this coming weekend. But it has been pointed out by her colleagues so far that she doesn't have any intention. We'll hear from her over the weekend, but we're being led to believe so far she's no intention of retracting uh, what was said in the doll. Are you surprised by that? Not particularly. I mean, look at the history of Sinn Féin. I mean, they're, they're, they're of a belief for a long time that uh, their aims surpassed those of laws, whether it's in this jurisdiction or in the north. And quite obviously, this would seem to be an example. It's unfortunate. Um, I think it throws Sinn Féin in a different light but as you say it doesn't seem to be reflected in the polls a lot of people they ain't worried about this kind of thing Alright then so uh, Mick thanks very much indeed for uh, joining us Mick Clifford as always joining us here on uh, News Talk uh, lunchtime for uh, the look back on what's been happening uh, for the for the week uh, thanks indeed for joining us Mick you're listening to News Talk lunchtime John Kyo in for uh, Jonathan uh, today now as always this time on a Friday we go to our man in the States Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe uh, let's see what's making the headlines uh, stateside. Afternoon to you, Kevin. Hello. Kevin, can you hear me? It's John here. Hey, John, how are you? I'm good, thanks. The big story from Boston this week, of course, without any shadow of a doubt, was the, the verdict in the case of Yakar um, Sadenvi for the Boston Marathon bombings. Um, first, let's have a listen, though, to Liz Norden, the mother of two survivors from that, her, from that attack. She was giving her reaction to the verdict. I literally saw my sons get blown up. You know, I saw um, I saw the fear in their eyes. You know, like to look for someone to help me. It was awful. For the mom of two boys that were hurt so bad, and to see so many injured that day, and to see what they suffer and they go through. Um, and I solely speak for myself. I want the death penalty. Right, Liz Norton there, who was the mother of two survivors from the Boston bombings. Uh, Kevin, I, I suppose it was no surprise that the, the guilty verdict came through. I, I think that probably had been widely expected, but that didn't make it any easier for any of the, the victims' families, as we just heard from Liz there. 
No, exactly. I mean, this was somewhat anticlimactic um, because the defense had had basically admitted guilt. Uh, they said from the very beginning, the only thing they would dispute was why why Jahars and I have turned to do this. Uh, they basically admitted all the facts as they existed in the case. So being found guilty of 30 counts and 17, which carried the death penalty, I think was a foregone conclusion. But I kind of, I was in the courtroom and kind of kept my eye between him standing there just reading along the verdict slip and Denise Richard, the mother of eight-year-old Martin Richard, who was the youngest of the victims who was killed at the, at the finish line. And you could see Denise Richard looking at him, trying to see you know, if, if any of this was registering, if he would show any kind of reaction. Yeah. And uh, it's been that way throughout the whole trial. He showed nothing. Now, the defense team are going to push for, or are pushing rather, for him to be given a life sentence rather than the, the death penalty. Isn't mm-hmm. that so? Yes. And they have, you know, precedent on their side. You know, since 1988, since the new rules of, uh, of federal rules for, for uh, the death penalty, there's only been three people executed. And probably the best thing they have going in their, in their, uh, in their corner is his age at the time of the offense. He was, nine, he was 19 years old. They will be presenting uh, technical and scientific witnesses who will t- talk about the frontal lobe of uh, adolescent males and when it forms and, and how they're susceptible to, to pressures that others may not be. So you, you're, you're going to hear a lot of you know, diminished capacity defense. And even though during the guilt phase of the trial, they, the defense kept raising the specter of the dead older brother, Tamalin, who was killed in the shootout with police. And when his brother actually ran him over in his haste to get away... Uh, he will be front and center. You'll hear more about him during this next phase than you probably will hear about Jahars and I have. We're always fascinated about, um, I don't mean that in the wrong way, about the death penalty mm-hmm. in, in this country just right. because it's, it's, you know, it's something that hasn't existed for, for a, a generation, I suppose, and more. How, and, and this is now front and center in, in Boston right now. How do mm-hmm. the people of Boston or, or Massachusetts feel when it comes to the death penalty? Well, Boston, in in you know, in particular, in Massachusetts, in general, would be probably the there would be more opposition to death penalty here than anywhere in the United States. But under the federal rules, on a case like this, people who got on that jury had to be, and it's this horrific term, death qualified. That means they had to be willing to impose the death penalty if they believed the the sentence or the the, the evidence warranted it. So in some respects, this is not a, a representative jury. You would not find it. And we've done polling at my newspaper that shows anywhere from 60 to 70 percent of people would prefer he gets life in, in prison. And when you say life in prison, for somebody like him, we're really talking about life in solitary confinement. He would go to the supermax prison in Colorado where every bomber of note, whether it's Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, or Ramsey Youssef, the bomber of the World Trade Center in 1993, that's where they all go. And they're all held in basically basically isolation. So it, it, it's going to be interesting to see this way the way it plays out. But the other thing that should be, you know, people need to be reminded of, there's going to be 12 people who make this decision. Only If only one says no yeah. to death, he will not receive death. He will receive an automatic life sentence with no possibility. Uh, and in a word, does life actually mean life? Oh, it will. Yeah. Yes. In the case of in, in a federal death penalty case, there's absolutely no grounds on which you could get a parole. Kevin, let's move on. Another tragic shooting of an unarmed man by police mm. in the States. This time it happened in South Carolina. Let's just have a quick listen to the witness who filmed the events, Fiden Santana. Um, they were down on the floor. They were down on the floor um, before before the um, I started recording. I remember the police um, had control 
the situation. He had control you know, of, the, of Scott, and Scott was trying just to get away from, from, from the taser, which the taser, you know, um, I, uh, you can hear the sound of the taser. Okay, so what followed Kevin appears to be uh, police officer Michael Slager shooting unarmed Walter Scott in the back as he tried to, to, to run away. Yeah, it's shocking at any level. I, I just wrote a piece that's going to be in tomorrow's Irish Times about this. And Walter Scott was not the first African-American whose killing at the hand of you know white police officers was captured on videotape, but he's clearly the most significant at this point. If you look at some of the other cases, John, whether it was um, Eric Garner in New York who was put in a chokehold for selling loose cigarettes, whether it was the 12-year-old boy, Tamir Rice, who was shot in Cleveland early this year. If you look at those cases, there's at least some mitigation. There's some reason that the police overreacted or acted too rashly. Or so. This case is completely different because mm. if you look at the video, this guy posed absolutely no threat. He was running away. He was about 15 to 20 feet away when the police officer leveled his gun and squeezed off eight rounds. And if you watch the videotape, one of the most disturbing things is there's a pause before that last Round And at that point, he's probably 30 feet away and he's stumbling down. But the other thing, if you watch the video, is more disturbing is how nonchalant the police officer was after this. He walked very casually to this person's side, a mm. mortally wounded man. He did not render medical assistance. He demanded that he put his hands behind his back. And has that police officer now been charged with murder? Yes, he has been. But, you know, this is the other part of the story. Up until the point that that young man who you just played a clip of, until he turned that over to the family and the family's lawyer brought it to an outside law enforcement agency, the police department was standing behind this officer. And the official version was this fellow tried to grab his stun gun and he was shot in a struggle. Well, the evidence is overwhelming. There was there was a struggle, but this man paused, posed absolutely no threat to the officer when he was shot. Kevin, is it my imagination or is it just me or or is this becoming an all too regular occurrence, this type of thing becoming all too regular occurrence in, in, in the US? It seems to be happening now on a, on, a, on a constant basis. Yeah, and I think this is why this case is different and so significant, John. I think there's been reasonable debates about previous incidents. And I think there's always been a, a belief, particularly by the white mainstream, ordinary, the majority of Americans is that, you know, oh, this is being overdone and most of the people involved were criminals, blah, blah, blah. This was a little different. And uh, actually, this was a lot different. And Mm. I think this is actually going to breathe a little more credibility into the Black Lives Matter uh, campaign, which I think has been seen as fringe by most Americans. When you see videotape evidence like this, incontrovertible evidence, I think it's going to make more Americans, particularly white Americans, sit up and pay attention to this issue, which people have been talking about in the black community for years. Kevin, this always seems to happen, but we've run out of time again. But thanks indeed for bringing us up to speed on all things stateside. Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe, thanks indeed for joining us on News Talk Lunchtime, as always on a Friday.